Amen. Well, for many months here, we have been hearing from the book of Ephesians about what God would have us or promises that we will become. Now we come this morning to the very end of the series and see how does the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, end this letter to the church. So now we will hear our Father's word as we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand and stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so you also may know how I am and, and what I'm doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, this past week we commemorated Veterans Day here in the United States. Uh, each year that we do, I remember the many conversations. I've really had my entire life with my dad about his service in World War II. I'm sure you've told it about, I've told you about it because I tell you everything about my life. He, he was in the old Army Air Corps. He flew missions in the European theater. I have a picture of him while he was in the Army Air Corps here when he was probably about 20 years old. Uh, one of the stories we would sometimes talk about was how Sir Winston Churchill, uh, how, how sure he was that as soon as the United States had entered the war effort, he felt like the war was as good as over. It, it had already been won. Uh, do you know that story? 
Well, I'll tell it to you. <laughs> Uh, the war had been going very, very poorly for England and the British Empire, and their Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, was deeply concerned about the future, even very depressed, almost hopeless. It was on December 7th, 1941. Anybody know that date? <laughs> After the invasion of Pearl Harbor, that uh, Churchill was in his country estate that I think was called Checkers. He was there with a few of his family members and friends. They report how he was so depressed that he would just sit for long periods of time with his face buried in his hands. But after dinner, he heard the news of the invasion at Pearl Harbor, and somehow, somehow he surmised the consequences of that attack, that it would lead the United States actually to join in the war efforts. So this is what he wrote about later when he heard this. He said, I thought, so we had won after all. We had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at the moment care. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. Now, you have to remember that when Churchill thought this, it would still be almost another four years before that war would be over. I mean, Hitler and Mussolini were still fully in power when he thought that in 1941. But still in his mind, when the U.S. entered the battle, the war was just as good as actually being over, even though there was all of this formidable opposition still there at work. I thought, I don't think my dad, when he enlisted and went over there and lived in London and heard those bombs whistling down upon them, I didn't think he thought, oh, this war's already over. <laughs> and yet somehow, that's what Churchill thought. And, and listen again to what he said. I'll put it up here. All the rest was merely the application of overwhelming force. Now, now, you might just wonder what on earth this history lesson has to do with the conclusion of our series in Ephesians and with the text that I just read to you. And I just want to tell you it has a lot to do with it because the book of Ephesians is one that repeatedly tells us that God has already declared what he's going to do. He is going to make all things right. He has made us incredible promises of what he says we will become, which has been the title of this series, what we will become when he's finished with his work. But I mean, right now, we're still in the midst of a ferocious battle against evil in this world. And that's what brings us to today and to the end of the book of Ephesians. And I'm, I'm calling my message, you perhaps saw it a minute ago, I'm calling it Overwhelming the Already Vanquished Foe overwhelming or overcoming the already vanquished foe. And I want to begin again with what's run all the way through the book of Ephesians, namely the assured victory that God declares. Go back all the way to chapter 1, verse 4, to this phrase. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, and here's his purpose, to be holy and blameless in his sight. See, we've been reading language like this week after week after week as we've studied the book of, of, of Ephesians. It's what God promises we will be, but we all know we are not that yet. 
I mean, it keeps speaking about these promises as if they are already done. Places like chapter 3, verse 24, we will be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He speaks about it as sure as if it's already true of us. And yet, I get up in the morning, and I'm guessing you get up in the morning and look in the mirror and you say, like God in true righteousness and holiness, I'm not there yet. Anybody else think that? And if you haven't, just look around you here, and you'll think that about the rest of us who are here. That's for sure. And you just ask, how can this possibly be? But basically, what God's Word tells us is exactly what Churchill says. He turns to us as his family and says, we've won. This battle is as good as over. So right now, all I want to tell you as we start the message is if Winston Churchill could be so confident of victory in that battle simply because the United States had entered the war and say all the rest is merely the proper application of overwhelming force, then how much more you and I can be confident that no matter what you and I are facing in this world, no matter what battles you might be having in your life or in your family, no matter what things may be there, that God has already said, I'm going to bring to completion what I've started, and it's going to be good. So the Apostle Paul would pray and pray and pray, as Jeff has called us to do. And one of those prayers, I just want to read it to you yet again. Back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, he prayed for his church. I pray that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. I'll tell you, as I prepared the message this week, this has been my prayer for you too, that whatever you are facing right now, you may know this power is with you and will bring to completion what he started. But let's come back to that next point. Uh, there is still formidable opposition in this world. And that brings us into this week's text, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. So in this world, he says, stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I need to stop there. I'm sure he's not saying that, that our, all of our struggles are, are, are against things other than flesh and blood. He's already been writing about how our own flesh is sometimes a part of the struggle. He just wants us to know that worldly things, that's not the only part of the struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As I read this, I thought as, as your senior pastor, I, I, I really feel the need to speak to you about something that you already experience, about why it is that sometimes the struggles in this world are so hard. About why it is that sometimes you'll even come to a service like this and make a recommitment of your life to the Lord, and when you walk out, it's as if there's something standing against you, an obstacle within you or outside of you that's keeping you from becoming all that God would have you to be. I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about here. So in talking about that this morning, I need to say a few words about the devil. I need, to, I need to settle in there for just a moment because I've lived here in Southern California for 11 and a half years now. And here in, in Southern California, here's what I've learned. Southern Californians are mostly very spiritual people. Most of us believe in, in spiritual realities out there, but most people in Southern California seem to really struggle with the idea that there might be a real 
personal evil being called the devil and real personal evil beings like those that the Apostle Paul calls here the spiritual forces of evil. Do you believe that those things are real? You see, here we here in Southern California, we tend to think uh, that when things go wrong in this world, all those things that go wrong, we just immediately, intuitively go to thinking the thing that causes those things that go wrong are natural causes. Even the worst of things, like racism or, or violence, and, and we attribute the things that go wrong in our world to psychological factors, to bad upbringing or parenting, inadequate education. You should have gone to one school or another. Bad sociological factors. I'll tell you, this is the worldview that those of us here who've grown up in the United States or in, or in, in Western Europe have grown up with. And, and make note of this. I, I don't want to overstate this. Natural causes do lead to all sorts of atrocities and problems. But I'll tell you, if every problem that we encounter in this world is due to a natural cause, then we should also be able to find a natural to lose solution to all of those problems. And we do find some. I mean, God gives us the ability through other things in his creation. There's medicine that sometimes helps with our sicknesses. There is counseling that happens and helps us with some of the difficult psychological problems. There are other kinds of therapies. But it seems to me that most of us here shy away from the notion that there is a supernatural, personal evil that we deal with. I found that here in Southern California, we don't even like to use that word evil about persons. Because that means that we believe in moral absolutes. <laughs> there's absolute good, there's absolute evil. And when we talk about that with reference to any kind of a person, it's like we're making a moral judgment, and we're not supposed to make moral judgments, right? That's one of the worst things in the United States. But I'll tell you, in spite of that, it just seems to me for all of us, it should be getting to be harder and harder to say that those things that we witness in our world, the mass shootings that seem to be escalating, the, uh, the holocausts, childhood sex slavery, that's even here in Southern California, that those kind of things are all and always due to natural causes. So that all we have to do to really deal with them is to have better natural solutions, better laws, better politicians, better street lights, more education. All those things are good, but I think that they will not deal with all the evil in this world. Are you with me here? If not, have you ever read Thomas Harris's book, Silence of the Lamb, or watched the movie? I wish I hadn't. <laughs> There's a young woman police officer there, I think it was played by Jodie Foster, wasn't it? Named Starling, who goes into this high security prison to meet this cannibalistic serial killer named Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins. And uh, after this terrifying conversation with him, it terrifies me just to, to, to remember it. She walks out and she says to her colleague, well, I'll just show you a picture so that I can bring the terror back into your hearts here. She walks out with him and she says to this colleague, what happened to him to make him so twisted and cruel? And he overheard her saying that. And then he says this, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. 
You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? Well, I tell you, the Bible clearly teaches us that created beings can become evil. That includes supernatural beings. Now, note this as I'm talking about that. The devil and his minions are not God. Uh, They are limited in power. They don't have all knowledge. They don't have all power. They're not everywhere present. Jesus could cast them out with a word. C.S. Lewis writes about this in in the intro to his book, Screwtape Letters. He said the problem that he saw in England was that people uh, either overestimated or underestimated the supernatural powers. They would overestimate them and make them uh, the cause of everything that goes wrong. Kind of like the old Flip Wilson show. The devil made me do everything that I do wrong. Geraldine Jones, his alter ego, would say. That's not true. Or sometimes we almost put the devil on an equal par with God. But, But that's not true either. So there are some who overestimate the devil. But there are, and I think we're more likely in Southern California to underestimate the devil. And Lewis writes, he says, the devil is happy with either one of those because we won't know how to deal with him. The way I see the Bible talking about this is that there is a multi-dimensionality to the wrongs and to the evils that you and I encounter in this world. There, There is our own fallen humanity. The Bible calls it the flesh. Uh, our own proclivity toward things like dishonesty and just pursuing pleasure or, or self-centeredness that, that sends us away from God. There is also the fact that you and I live in a world where there have been just centuries after centuries of wrongdoing and wrong decision-making that means that into all of our structures and systems there are things that are wrong and that are unjust. There is the flesh, there is the world. But the Bible says there's more, that there is also the devil. So as we think about the formidable opponent that we have to deal with as we go out in this world to live for God, I'll just sum this up in in these three statements. One, there are spiritual realities in the universe. There is surely God, but there are also evil spiritual realities in the universe, so be aware. Two, God's people then have a formidable enemy So if you belong to him, be on your guard. But evil forces are not God. So be aware, be on your guard, but do not fear. And I'll tell you why right now. So we're going to get on uh, to see how this battle against evil is actually going to be won. For it most certainly will be won. That's my third and final point here. Our responsibility, that's how I put it, and God's resources for this battle. The Bible always put those two things together. It's hard to figure it out. We have a responsibility to make real decisions to do things, but God is the one who is at work to do it. So here's the way he puts it. Three statements back to back in this. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Two, put on the full armor, the armor of God and stand firm, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. 
So I've been asking myself why the Apostle Paul ended this letter to his church <laughs> with this. And I, I've been picturing him as a really loving pastor who on one side really wants his people when they leave the church to be aware that when they go out into the world, it's not going to be easy and, and the kinds of things they're going to have to face so that they won't be surprised. I think that needs to happen. On the other side, he wants them to be able to go out and live with hope and with joy and with confidence that evil will not be the winner. And so he talks about these spiritual realities on one side because he, they needed to know, and, and we need to know, that they are real. But on the other side, he wants us to know that God is God, and we are his, and he is with us. So we have these three powerful phrases. Our responsibility, first, be strong. So when you go out, go in that strength, but it's in, in the Lord and in his mighty power. All right, how, how do those two things work together? I've been thinking all week to try to, about an illustration, and the best I can do is this. Um, when I grew up in West Virginia, I, I walked to school, and I was sort of a wimpy kid. Uh, so when I'd walk to school, uh, there would be the bullies along the way, bigger than I was and more of them, and they did what bullies always do. Uh, they, they intimidated and they threatened and they stole my lunch money and said, tomorrow if you come back, you've got to have more money than that. So I, I didn't like that. I didn't even want to go to school. But I did have, you know, a big brother. I've told you about him. He was one of the biggest guys in school, football player, weightlifter. He had to get to school early. Um, he had to stay a little bit late. So you know what I chose to do? I'd go to school early with him and come back late with him. So we take the same route. We take the same route. And as uh, we came to the, the bullies were there. Uh, but when I was standing there with my brother, I, I tell you, I stood strong. <laughs> and I stood firm about a half an inch away from him. <laughs> I don't know if that's a perfect illustration, but it's a pretty good one. We go out into this world, and as Martin Luther would put it in, in, in a mighty fortress with devils filled that threaten to undo us. But we will not fear, for we go with the Lord, and we go in his mighty power. And that's what I want you to learn to do, to learn to know that wherever you go, God goes with you, that it's not just here in church where God is present. So be strong in the Lord and in his power. And then this, this next, the second piece, put on the full armor, but it's the armor of God. So this, this is a different kind of an armor that is there. It is an armor that is a gift from God, and then you stand firm. Now, anybody who's been to church as much as I have, you've been hearing about this armor and seeing pictures of it on flannel graph and stuff, so you know this better than, than I perhaps even know it myself, but I think I might be able to give a few things that I don't think I heard enough in Sunday school. The first thing is this, that what I think he's talking about here is developing a rhythm of life, how you actually start the day. Because I'll tell you when, you, when you think about putting armor on because there's a battle in this world, it's not that you go out and get into the battle, the temptation comes or the enemy, enemy comes, you say, wait a minute, I don't have my armor yet. Come back and put on the armor. Okay, let's go. That, that's not what it is, do you see? It's telling us to be smart, to be aware, and wake up in the morning and to develop a rhythm of life in which we consciously and intentionally get ready for whatever we're going to have to face that day. 
And so in looking at that, he tells us about these pieces of armor. I'll put a picture up here. You can just look at that. Because as you look at it, you can think about all the different pieces. Uh, I'll launch into that and try to be brief about this as I possibly can. The first thing, and, and we call it up there the belt of truth. But, but really, I think it, it would be better to call it the garment of truth. There's been a lot of discussion about what this, this belt is that we put on. But almost certainly, I, I am personally convinced that what he's talking about is not a belt that we put around our waist, but that foundational undergarment that goes under all of the armor. Because you didn't put the armor right onto your flesh. You put this other piece on. And if I'm right about that, and that garment is the garment of truth, then it says that when you go out into the battle, this is what is fundamental to you actually walking into that battle, going into it with the truth. And that hits on several different levels. On one level, it is the fact that Jesus himself is the truth. So that, that you recommit yourself to the one. It can't be your righteousness. It, it's got to be his applied to you. you. The Lord of your life, the one whom you will follow as you go into the day, is the one who is the truth. It also has to mean, when he says, put on in the morning that garment of truth, a recommitment to living a life of truth, a personal integrity, so that any accusation that is brought against you, it's not something that you're hiding because you're wanting to live the truth and bring that out into the open as every Christian must. So it's meaning a life of truth. And then, and then the other part is, it seems to me, bearing the truth, carrying the message of Jesus who is the truth and brings peace into the lives of people. Because when you see it that way, getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, I am committed to the truth in those ways, then you see how the breastplate of righteousness fits with that. Because being committed to the truth means that those vital organs, including your heart, they, they are protected. And the accusations that come, because that's what the devil does, his, his name really means the accuser. When those accusations come, you have a breastplate that protects you from them. Because no accusation can come that has not already been dealt with when the righteousness of Jesus has been applied to our lives. So we put on, and the sandals of the gospel of peace show you that we're ready to go out, and not only are we ready to engage in the battle, but to bring good news and light into the midst of darkness. So as I see it, he says, those are the things that you wear so that you'll be ready for whatever you face, wherever God happens to send you on that day. And then he goes on from there to tell us about the three things that we carry. Did you notice that? These are the shield of faith, a shield that just wards off um, or fends off destructive things like fiery arrows <laughs> that the evil one and, and in the, any opposition throws at us. False accusations. You have those at work sometimes or at school. Uh, gossip that seems to undermine your reputation. And in those times, it's faith. You say, the only one I have to please is really the Lord. My faith is in you. You are my justifier. With that shield of faith that I will be faithful to you, you can fend off and not be devastated by the arrows thrown at you. You put on the helmet of salvation, verse 17. So that, that covers your head. The idea there is salvation we keep our minds protected by the helmet of salvation, focus on the fact that what God has promised, that he is going to fully rescue, fully save us, nothing can take that away so that whatever may happen in this world, we're able to continue to walk in faith. 
And finally, the only offensive weapon he talks about is the sword of the spirit. And then he adds, do you notice the next phrase? You have a Bible in front of you, it's it's, uh, verse 17. Which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, I love the way he puts those two parts of what God gives to us together. Uh, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. On one side, you don't even know how to live in the midst of the battle unless you have God's Word to teach you. And yet at the same time, you can memorize this entire Word because I know some of the best Bible scholars in the world who don't care anything about Jesus. They've just become scholars. So simply learning the Word, that's not going to do it, is it? And yet if you don't know the Word, (laughs) you don't know how to live. He puts them together. I, I encourage you to become the best student of this word that you possibly can be. I, I encourage you in this rhythm of life that I think Paul is talking about to begin by having, reading something in, in God's word. But then I also encourage you to stop and recognize, Father, I need to be able to apply this to my life. I need to be empowered by and inspired by your spirit who will be with me. So in the morning... If that's the way you put on, on the armor and get ready to go into the battle, there's just one more thing you should do before you walk out of your room or out of your house. And that is this third point. Pray in the Spirit. And I love it. He puts it on all occasions with all kinds of requests, all kinds of prayers for all God's people and pray for me too. <laughs> that's what he says. This is the culmination of things because if you're with me here, and you've been born again to God and to a spiritual world through faith in Jesus, and you know there are going to be battles out there in the world that you go into, but also that God himself, through his spirit, is going to be with you, then you take a few moments just to stop and acknowledge that God's spirit dwells within you. Pray in the spirit. And for me, there are are several implications to that. One is communion with the spirit. The recognition, Lord, you are with me. I want to please you. You know everything about me. You want the very best for me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be facing this. So, Lord, I'll go into it with, with you this day. Give me wisdom. Give me courage. It's partly that communion. A part of it is, is that confidence that it gives so that when you go, you know that the Spirit who is with you here in church and also when you're in prayer and you're in your quiet place is also going to be wherever you are. And so you can rely upon the fact that you have this this enormous power available to you that raised Jesus from the dead. He is greater than what you're going to face. And then the amazing thing, he goes on, because I think he's thinking about this. And this is what makes prayer for others possible. How is it? Have you ever thought about it? How is it that I can be praying here for somebody all the way over in Lebanon? And how can that make any difference? How could they be praying there? And Paul was in prison. They couldn't get in there with him. And yet he will say there, pray for me that I may fearlessly proclaim the gospel. Well, the answer to that is found in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit who dwells within me and within you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is also there. I cannot understand how that is, but God is more than I am and you are. And this is what makes prayer possible. This is why we pray for the persecuted church as Paul tells us. This is why they prayed for him in the prison. 
This is why we are praying for those in both in Southern California and up in the northern part of California who are being so devastated by the fires. That prayer for them matters. It often leads us to action, but it also makes a difference because God is more than we are and he is also more than our foes are and he promises never to leave us or forsake us. And with that, the Apostle Paul ends his letter. I thought it's an interesting way for a pastor to end his letter. I think it's a loving way for Paul to end his letter. So I was thinking about this. Chris and I were in Colorado this week. And as I was flying back on the plane, I was reading this. And I I said, Lord, why did he end the letter with talking about the devil? (laughs) I think I'd end with something else. Uh, But no, I wouldn't. He ended that because he loved his people. And he thought about, I know my, my, my church people there in Ephesus are going through a tough time just as I am here in a prison. And so I need to talk to them about this and give them hope. And in fact, more than hope, certainty that uh, God is going to be the victor. So I sat down and said, what would I want to pray for our people here at Lake Avenue Church? And I started writing things down there in the airport. So here's what I wrote down. I called it my final pastoral words based on Paul's final pastoral words. By, by saying my pa- final pastoral words, it's not my absolute final. Uh, <laughs> my final pastoral words from Ephesians, <laughs> from Paul's uh, final words. And there are several things that came to mind that in light of this series I want to, to give to you. One, I so much long for you to be confident about what God is doing here in your church family. The more you're in any one church family, the more you see all the flaws in that church family because we all have them. And sometimes we almost give up. I'll tell you, if you came in and you thought you were looking for an absolutely perfect church family here at Lake, well, it can't be because I'm here. And I can well imagine it it can't be because you're here too. I I, I just think that must, because God is still working on, on us. But he is still working on us. And the whole emphasis of the book of Ephesians is he's planted us here in this community to reflect his glory. Just like he did in Ephesus, and he brought Jew and Gentile together into that one church, and it was hard for them. And yet he said, make sure that you live out the unity that Christ has established through his blood and through the gift of his spirit. So when you think about the fiery arrow that God might shoot at Lake Avenue Church, Where is the place that the evil one would most want to do damage to a church like ours? And I am sure that he would try to destroy our unity. Because, John 13, Jesus said that's the way that people will know that we're really Christians and not just faking it. John 17, that's the way the world will know that the Father sent Jesus and he's just not one of many other religions. And so I I believe that that's going to be the the main place that we're always going to have to know that that flaming arrow is going to be sent at us. And I just ask you to make a renewed commitment to your very flawed church family, but whom God loves, and I think God is at work here. If you're visiting with us, do the same with your own church family. If you haven't found one, I'll tell you one that I really love, (laughs) and that is this one. And that's the first thing I want to say to you 
that what God has started among us here, he will bring it to completion, but we've got to stick with one another and love one another and pray for one another and hold one another accountable until his work is done. First thing I wanted to say. Second thing I wanted to tell you is this. When you leave church today, I don't want you to be surprised when you face opposition. I mean, even struggles that are really, really hard. Because even though sometimes it seems like uh, the evil is winning, it is not going to win. God himself has declared that victory is sure and the battle is not over. So when you go out and you face a challenge or a difficulty, don't think, oh, what did I do wrong or any of that. Mostly put your faith again in God and say, I know you are here and then get up there about a half inch away from him. (laughs) Really, he dwells within you. So I, I just don't want you to be surprised when you've come to church and found some real joy in a recommitment today and walk out and, and find that the battles are still really hard. Third thing I wrote down, and when they are, I don't want you to be anxious or afraid in the midst of whatever struggles come. And by that, I was even thinking about those times when you'll fail, when the temptation will come, and you'll fail yet again, and you'll wonder, is God done with me? And I tell you, he is not. Every communion time, I tell you that. He he is not. You need to turn back to him. You know what will happen when you confess that sin? You say, well, you're done with me. You know what he'll say? I'll remember that sin no more. But he'll also say, go and sin no more. So mark, mark, mark that down, both of those things. And I just want to make sure that you have hope and peace, not anxiety and fear in the face of the struggle. And then the same thing I see the Apostle Paul talking about. I'm praying that you'll develop more and more this rhythm of life, that you'll get up in the morning and just the first thing you'll do is put on the armor, put on the armor of God, praying in the Spirit. Uh, These are the gifts that God gives to us. Uh, He leaves us so that we are not alone. Uh, Prayer especially is that gift that even though God is there, it's those times when you stop and acknowledge that he is there and really enter into the presence of God in the name of Jesus, that you begin to experience his presence and reality. I pray you have, and then your mind will move on. You'll begin to pray, carrying the burdens of some of your friends and family members. You'll even begin to pray for your brothers and sisters whom you have never met praying that all of us, when we go out into this world filled with devils, will be able in the midst of that to be at peace, but also to fearlessly, as Paul says says verse 20, fearlessly make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I declare to you, the victory has been declared. God himself. Amen. God himself proclaims that the battle against evil has already been won. Satan's fate is sealed. All the rest is merely the proper application of overwhelming force. You know, that force is the mighty power of God, and it will be to his glory. 
Amen. Let me, amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, where I've been faithful to this word, use it in each one of our lives and prepare us for what you would have us to do and to be this week. For those discouraged, renew hope. For those who have failed, remind them of the availability of forgiveness and draw them to confession and send them a newness of life. And Father, for some, I'm sure, who have come to Lake who don't know you as Father through faith in Jesus, haven't begun this beautiful, wonderful walk with you, I pray that this will be the day of their salvation, that there will be some here even this morning who say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find that they are saved. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen.